all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus race. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's going down, Far Far Away family? Hold on to your blasters because it's showtime. I am your host with the most, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to an interstellar phenomenon known as Star Wars Audio Archives. Are you feeling the cosmic buzz? I hope you are ready to turn up the excitement meter because we're about to unleash an episode that will have you looking like a wampa on Tatooine. This intergalactic adventure is going to be off the charts. Are you prepared to have an absolute blast? Then let's get started. In the dining hall, Lusk was watching the dead awaken. He saw it with two sets of eyes, the ones he'd had when he'd been alive, and the strange new vision that the sickness had given him. On some intuitive level, he understood that the first set was fading, going blind. And that was fine with him. Absolutely fine. The sickness had given him everything he'd hoped for, everything he wanted, power and strength beyond all imagining. It had altered the midi-chlorians in his bloodstream, telescoping his natural abilities, enhancing them exponentially. He had been here, of course, when the things burst out of the kitchen, and he defended himself adroitly with a series of force pushes and acrobatic jumps while weaker and less skilled students had fallen and been devoured. Within minutes, the things from the kitchen had transformed the dining hall into a charnel house of untrammeled butchery. Now the floors were slick with blood. The newly dead were rising slowly, shuffling to their feet. Rising up with them, Lusk stared into their faces. Faces that he recognized from the Academy, now contorted into something utterly new. He felt no fear at the sight of them, no sense of foreboding, only a slick, dark fascination. I'm looking at my future he thought, and shivered with anticipation. It was a good future, he realized. An endless future. A place of unfathomable possibility. He saw it all now. The rumor was that Darth Scabrus had been experimenting with an immortality drug, a remedy for death itself. And Lusk saw now that the Sith Lord had been successful beyond his wildest dreams and most deranged nightmares. These things had transcended death. The power they held was beyond anything taught here at the Academy. Before it, both Jedi and Sith were nothing, less than nothing, infinitesimal crumbs in the vast expanse of the universe. Lusk saw the things around him crowding closer. And that was when he realized it. It wasn't enough just to be transformed, to see the world with these new necroscopic eyes. The sickness had given him its gift, but it wanted something in return, something crippling and enormous. And now, belatedly, Lusk grasped what it was. The sickness wanted that part of him that made him who he was. That exceptional set of skills and memories and quirks that had made him unique. The sickness meant to siphon all of that away so that it could make him part of the greater, swelling organism of the dead. The sickness wanted his soul. No, Lusk told it. It's too much. Even for what you offer, even for immortality itself, the price is too high. 
I will make you the last one, the sickness promised. Of all the others, you alone shall endure. That is what I have to offer you. No. The sickness paused within him, considering. That is too bad, because you no longer have a choice in the matter. Placing his hand over his chest, Lusk felt his heart stop beating. All around him, the newly dead were screaming, screaming. He threw back his head and opened his mouth, and he too began to scream. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brat found the weapons cache just before they reached the barrier. He'd heard that these tunnels were lined with subchambers and cysts, some of them hundreds of years old, as old as the Academy itself. According to the rumors, generations of Sith Lords had used them for storage or hiding places for things they never wanted found. He and Kindra had found the first of the chambers twenty minutes after the group had finished watching the training droid's hologram. Nobody had spoken much since then. They had moved in silence, listening. Look, Kinder said, pointing at the badly oxidized metal sign bracketed onto the wall. It read, Arsenal 1174-AA. Give me a hand, Raat said, taking hold of the handle. It was a rudimentary side hatch whose stubborn refusal to open was less a matter of security and more a result of the moisture and grit that had accumulated inside its components over the years. Mags grabbed one edge and Hartwig and Kindra took the other and it came open with a metallic clang. They all stood for a moment peering in. Hartwig whistled. That's the most beautiful sight I've seen in a long time, he said. Raat had to agree with him. The bin in front of them was loaded with gear. Some basic melee weapons and body armor for training purposes, headpieces and blast-dampening chest plates, and in the back, in a separate wall mount, three lightsabers. Kendra reached past him and grabbed one in each hand. As Raat took the last one for himself, he wondered why she'd taken two and guessed she was just optimizing her chances of getting a fully functional weapon. Although the power cells were supposed to hold an almost indefinite charge, there was no telling if any of them still worked, or even how long they'd been stashed down here. As often as he'd trained with them, 
lightsabers still held an arcane sense of mystery that made them both fascinating and vaguely unsettling, a link to the Sith's ancient past. Ra'at thumbed the activation plate, and the scarlet blade sprang to life. He could feel it vibrating up from hand to elbow, the sheer authoritative power of it humming through his entire arm, giving it purpose and strength. He brought the blade up in front of his face, admiring it, feeling the small, fine hairs stiffen on the backs of his arms. Next to him, Kendra had switched on both of hers as well. Mags, she said, and tossed him the one in her left hand. He caught it effortlessly. Thanks. Hartwig frowned. Wait a second, where's mine? There were only three. So, what, I'm out of luck? Kendra shrugged. And Ra'at realized the other reason she'd grabbed two instead of one. It had allowed her to decide who carried the third. She had given it to Mags, who, while not the most proficient duelist, was probably the least likely to snap under pressure and take one of their heads off, either by accident or in a fit of poor judgment. Flay that noise, Hartwick said. We should draw lots to see who gets what. Otherwise, otherwise what? Kendra asked. She was still holding her remaining lightsaber in front of her, regarding Hartwig coldly from behind its blade. You'll leave? Good riddance. It's everyone for themselves anyway. Hartwig glared at Kendra with a glint of righteous indignation that Ra'at guessed was eventually going to get him killed. Kendra, however, had already seemed to have lost interest in him. She deactivated the lightsaber, clipped it onto her belt, and began eyeing the corridor ahead of them. Come on, let's keep going. There might be another weapons dump up this way. Don't turn your back on me, Hartwig said. Is that a threat? Just a warning. She unclipped the lightsaber. Then I guess I'll just kill you now, won't I? You... Kendra's arm whipped upward. The blade was already ignited, sweeping up in a lethal blur, halting centimeters from Hartwig's throat. Stepping back, Hartwig glanced over at Mags and saw him waiting to see what would happen. For a long moment, neither of them moved or spoke, and the only sound inside the tunnel was the faint, steady hum of the lightsaber itself. You won't do that, Hartwick said. You need me too much. But what he'd obviously intended to be defiance came out as little more than a strangled-sounding squeak. Kendra didn't answer, just stood riveted to his gaze. The blade stayed where it was. Rat saw how its light reflected off the beads of sweat that had begun to accumulate on Hartwig's upper lip. Kendra, Rat started, shut up. He's right. You saw those things in the hollow. We're outnumbered. We need every... I'll tell you what I don't need. She still hadn't taken her eyes off Hartwig. I don't need to constantly be looking over my shoulder. She nodded, seeming to decide something in that moment. No, Hartwig. I think I'm going to have to finish your sorry carcass off right now. Hartwig's lip twitched, trying to make words that wouldn't come for what seemed like a long time. Do it then, he rasped. Make your move. Rat's hand slipped downward toward the handle of his own lightsaber. Things were deteriorating even faster than he'd anticipated. Yet somehow he wasn't surprised. Perhaps it was better this way anyway. You really want to take sides now, he thought. And for the moment, at least, he willed his hand to stay where it was. 
Um, guys, Mag said from behind them, you're gonna want to see this. It's... He broke off in a sloppy cough that sounded too loose and wet, as if he were struggling to keep himself from gagging. Mags whistled. <gasps> Anybody else smell that? That was how they found the wall. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Scabrous entered the library through the northwest side, as was his habit. There were five main entrances, but this one led directly to the underground chamber where he'd first found the holocron, so it held a certain degree of emotional resonance. Also, it was closest, and he had begun deliberately conserving energy. According to the hemodialysis counter on the shoulder pack, his whole blood reserves were down to two units now. He wasn't worried about running out, but he wanted to make sure that he was sufficiently able to enjoy everything that would come next. Stepping out of the storm, he walked beneath the high, icicle-dripping stone archway and strode briskly down the corridor that led to the main stairwell. These walls were thick, but he could still hear the wind whooping and shrieking outside. And after a moment of standing absolutely still, he heard another sound. The low crack of shifting rock and stone. It sounded like something making its way through a pile of brittle old bones. Dearless, Scabra said. Come out! At first, there was no response. Then a long branch slithered from the crooked crack in the wall above him, sliding sinuously downward. And the Sith Lord looked up to see the face of the Neti, its ancient, wrinkled eyes peering wearily at him. My lord, the librarian said, what brings you here? I need something from you. Anything, my lord? Scabra started to speak again, and something in the Nettie's voice stopped him. In the past, its tone had always been respectful, even reverential, but now it sounded outright frightened. Its fear was the fear of the old and infirm, the apprehension of a thing that couldn't protect itself properly from some nebulous but very real threat. You feel it too, then? Scabrous asked. What, my lord? Do not play ignorant with me. The netty quavered visibly, but did not answer right away. Then it said, You refer to the sickness? 
Yes? Is that what you're calling it? Scabrous asked. A sickness? If it pleases, my lord, it is a disease, some kind of uncontrollable infection that has been let loose. The Academy has been exposed to worse things in the past. I speak not simply of the Academy. Another pause, then one even longer. I sense it within you, my lord. Scabra stared up at the tree creature's face, looking deep into its moist and measuring eyes. As he looked, he felt something stir inside him. A chasm opening, as if some second chiseled set of jaws were spreading apart in his chest. It wasn't a painful feeling, not at all. If anything, it was profoundly tactile. For a moment, he actually looked down at his body, expecting to see his abdomen stretching beneath the broad cloth of his tunic, the rib cage broadening, gaping open to reveal... What? Something new? Something that transcended even his vast realm of experience? Scabrous drew a breath, trembling with anticipation, and allowed the feeling to recede. Come down here, he said. My lord! Now! The crack in the wall widened, and the netty's thick trunk slithered tentatively downward through it. Wood grain creaking in sinuous little crackles as it twisted closer to where the Sith Lord stood waiting. Now there was no mistaking the fear in the librarian's face. It bordered on panic. My lord, please. I want you to send out a message. Yes? There is a Jedi here among us on this planet. The librarian waited. The Jedi's particular talent is botanical telepathy, plant language. Right now, she is communicating with the spirit of an orchid, a flower whose presence she trusts implicitly, and... Scabrous paused. He could hear the words that he was saying, but his voice sounded different to him. As he spoke, he became aware of that hollow, gaping feeling again. Except this time it wasn't confined to his chest and abdomen. It was radiating through his entire body systemically, enveloping his arms and legs and head. My lord, the netty prompted. Scabra still didn't respond. For an instant, certainly no longer, he could actually feel the presence of transformation pushing up against the corpuscles of freshly infused blood fighting against it, invading and overtaking it. And again, as before, there was no pain, only a feverish red aura spilling outward to encompass his vision from within. He was deeply conscious of his own breathing, in and out, a hot coppery taste in his mouth, and a peculiar wave of euphoria rushed over him, a promise of power beyond comprehension. Yet miraculously, he remained lucid, wholly self-aware. The Jedi's name, he said at last, is Hestizo Trace. I want you to speak to her in the voice of the Orchid. 
Do you understand? You will summon her here to the library in the voice that she trusts so that I shall deal with her and fulfill my destiny. Is that clear? The netty garbled out a sound that wasn't quite a word. I asked if you... Scabrous began, and then he saw why the tree creature wasn't answering. A huge chunk of pulp, the netty's woody flesh, had been ripped out just below its mouth, leaving a hole the size of Scabrous's fist. Thick, amber-colored sap dribbled from the wound, oozing down its rough bark, trickling over its branches. Scabrous licked his lips and smiled, still tasting the strange, sticky blood of the tree creature on his tongue and the roof of his mouth. I did that, he marveled. He'd attacked it without the slightest conscious intent. It had been that thing within, that mouth. On some intuitive level, he understood that this explained the vast explosion of strength he'd felt. My lord! The netty managed at last, its voice trembling. Please! You do understand what I'm asking, Scabra said. Or do you not? Yes, my lord. Excellent. Then I await her arrival. He left the netty stretched from the ceiling, a pool of semi-translucent sap already spreading underneath it, across the library's floor. Zoe stood with snow falling in her face, staring up at the tower. I don't understand, she said. How did we end up back here? The whippet didn't answer. This time, though, any response would have been gratuitous. She knew why they were here. Somewhere inside the paddock, they'd lost their sense of direction to a Sith illusion, crude but effective. And now they were back out where they'd begun. Then she saw the figures... They were poised like carved grotesques along the uppermost walls of the tower. Life-sized statues illuminated by the irregular stammering red glow from the top. At first, she thought that was all they were. Statues. Gargoyles. Except they were moving. Crawling. Swarming over the other's backs like some hideously overgrown version of the flesh-eating bosky beetles she'd seen aboard Talca's ship. And when the light caught their faces, she could see that they were, or at least once had been, human. Their uniforms, which Zoe realized must be the black robes and tunics of the Sith Acolyte, were tattered and ragged, and they billowed behind them in the screeching wind. She watched as a cluster of them began to clutch and lever their way closer to the tower's viewports. One of them threw back its head and began to hammer one fist on the surface with awful ape-like determination. What are they doing? Tulka grunted, looking for a way in. Why? A scream came shearing down from above, the single compressed blast that she remembered from inside the supposedly deserted barracks, and the bounty hunter stepped back, hissing some obscenity under his breath. They... Before he could finish, one of the things fell from far above, whistling down in front of her. She looked back at Tulka. He was gone. 
Zoe jerked back and looked up again. Overhead, another of the things on the tower had detached itself and was plummeting downward like a renegade slab of darkness itself, some broken chunk of the universe, falling fast, still screaming through the flying snow. The screeching thing slammed into the ground on all fours, and even though its back was to her, Zoe could see the hole where its uniform was ripped open to reveal the architecture of exposed ribs and scooped-out portion of vertebrae. Snowy air whistled through the hole, and she saw clumped loops of intestine, blackened with a crust of dried blood flapping alongside the torn fabric. Part of its lungs seemed to have been jolted loose in the fall, leaving one of them dangling, inflating and deflating raggedly like some small, panting animal. Tulka... It drove him down into the snow when it landed on him, and now it's trying to get him out. The second thing stalked over toward the snowdrift, its head slightly inclined, seeking an angle of attack. Zoe heard another scream from above, and the two corpses in the Sith uniforms shrieked back their answering cry. Tulka's arm burst up and out of the snow, holding his spear, and thrust it forward. An instant later, the Sith thing on top of him reared back, staggering blindly, the tip of his spear embedded in its face. Its right cheek was a suppurating cave-in of demolished bone structure. The long shaft protruded from its head like a clumsy, oversized horn. Tulka sat up, spitting snow. Juddering Yankwit, he snarled. This should teach you to jump on me. He knocked the thing backward with one foot, held it down, and jerked his spear loose from its face. Then, using both hands, he brought his spear tipped down hard, directly into the thing's already demolished torso, hard enough to pulverize the spine, cutting it completely in half. The upper and lower segments squirmed listlessly in the snow, then fell still. Hold on! Breathing hard, he glanced up at Zoe. Where's the other one? I don't... Down! And without waiting for her to comply, he fired the spear directly at her. Zoe dropped to her knees, feeling his spear whip through her hair just across the top of her scalp. From behind, something landed on top of her. A landslide of meat flattening the air from her chest, blocking out sight and hearing, driving her into the snow. She felt cold, clutching hands and the sticky, oily drip of partially coagulated fluids seeping down over the skin of her neck, where her collar didn't quite cover her flesh. It, too, began to scream, and then the scream broke off with a choked, flapping noise. It was followed by a series of sharp chops, and the flapping stopped. Get up! Tulka's voice, muffled, came from above her. Zoe dragged herself upright. The bounty hunter was standing in front of her. The severed head of the thing he'd just decapitated hung from the top of the spear at an almost jaunty angle, the tip jetting upward through its broken jaw to protrude from one empty eye socket. The gray lips sagged, dangling thick strands of ropey pink drool and its one remaining eye wobbled back and forth, somehow managing to look both sly and stupid beneath the swollen lid. A teenager, Zoe said. Seventeen, eighteen at the most. She watched the yellow eye. It's still looking at me. 
They're dead. Talca shrugged down at the other body he'd left in the snow and shook his head. Forget about it. There was another klaxon-like blast of noise from up above. Zoe looked up as far as she could. It was like a rallying call. The snow-choked darkness that surrounded the tower was suddenly filled with falling bodies, more than she could count. They came tumbling in twos and threes from the top of the tower, eyes blazing, teeth shining, slamming into the ground in every direction, almost close enough to grab her from the point of impact. They brought their screams with them so that they seemed to land on a cushion of sound. In front of her, Tulka fell into a fighting stance. Jedi trained you to fight, didn't they? She nodded once. Then fight them! The Sith things were all around them now. Their screams were constant, ululating everywhere, the air itself seeming to stiffen with their shrieks. Zoe realized that she couldn't see Tulka anymore. There's no way we can take them all. And then something else spoke. Yes, you can. Zoe paused, brought up short by the voice. It sounded true and strong and clarion clear. At first, she thought it was the orchid. Then she realized that she was hearing the voice of her brother, Rojo. But that's impossible. He's nowhere near here. And it wasn't really Rojo. The words were coming from her memory, from the storehouse of encouragement that he'd given her in the past when she'd been training at the Jedi Academy. There had been times when she felt exhausted and hopeless, and he had spoken to her, encouraged her to stand up, to be strong and be true. Listen, Hestizo, the Jedi taught you much more than simply how to fight. They taught you how to live, how to live within the Force and uphold the bond that you share with it. With these words, Hestizo Trace felt a deep and voluminous feeling of rightness booming through her. At the Jedi Temple, she'd heard others in the discipline try to describe the experience, saying it was like this or like that. But for her, it was simply the experience of being alive, of wild and ecstatic belief, but amplified. All the encumbrances of frustration and anxiety fell away filling her very essence with an entire universe of pure, sustaining energy. She looked around again and saw the Sith things crashing to the ground on all sides of her, raising their heads and opening their mouths. And everything slowed down. Get... Tulka was saying, one arm sludging back to pluck a meter-long arrow from his quiver, moving so slowly that he seemed to be underwater. Zoe sprang up into the air like a woman moving through a gallery of wax figures. She came down just behind one of the Sith things, grabbed its greasy, partially decayed skull in both hands from the back, and wrenched it hard to the left. The cervical spine popped and gave with a crunch the entire cranium coming loose as she ripped it free from the shoulders. The head was still screaming as she threw it underhand into the next shambling thing, hitting it hard enough to knock it back into the side of the tower. A third she grabbed by the throat and crotch, hoisting it up and pile-driving it straight upward in the direction it had come. Behind her, she heard the twang as Tulka's arrow finally left the bowstring. Without glancing back... 
so reached out and lifted the flying arrow out of the air. She did this effortlessly without a thought, like someone taking a book from the shelf. Behind her, across the depths of motionless snowflakes, Tulka stood with his lip still curling to form the last part of his first word, while the five remaining Sith things perched like statues barely moving in various aspects of attack. Springing forward, snapping the arrow in two, Zoe buried the halves of the shaft in two of their skulls hard enough to impale them permanently together, face to face, like horrific lovers melded for all eternity. She grabbed the arm of the grinning, mossy-faced Sith acolyte, who appeared to have gnawed through his own lips and the interior of his mouth up to his hard palate. Twist. Pop. The arm came free at the elbow, and she swung it down like a club on the skull of the walking corpse in front of him. She sensed events moving faster now, her hold on the situation loosening again. The snowflakes were coming unstuck from the air, starting to confetti down in reckless profusion. The Sith thing that she'd flung upward earlier was finally coming back down. As the last of the thing shambled toward her, she heard a dull, whacking thump, the kindling sharp crack of a dozen fractured bones. Down! Tulka finished, only then seeming to realize that the arrow was gone from his bow and that the Sith things were all on the ground now, torn apart. He looked up at Zoe. His nostrils twitched. Leave any for me? She pointed at the two bodies writhing in the snow between them. Tulka drew his spear, raised it up, and rammed it down through them both. His eyes were blazing, saturated with red, almost glutted with pleasure, and there was no misinterpreting the grin that twisted over his face. Zoe thought that she'd never seen any living thing, human or otherwise, extract such shameless pleasure from the act of killing. Hestizo. This time, the voice of the orchid was unmistakable. Hestizo. Come. She stopped and listened, felt herself smiling, overcome by a sudden surge of hope. From somewhere in the falling snow, Tulka was staring at her. What is it? He wanted to know. The Murakami, she said. It's alive. I thought you said... I know, but I can hear it. It's calling me. Tulka scowled, unconvinced. Where? She peered back through the blizzard, pointing. The library! It was a pleasure to burn. The netty saw it now, latched onto this simple tautology in a way that he had never grasped anything in his long life. Within moments after Scabrous had left him here with his mission, to call out to the Jedi, to summon her here... Everything within his ageless wooden mind had begun to grow wonderfully, gloriously clear. And oh, it was a pleasure. A pleasure to burn. Clutching rows of hollow books with one long branch hand, the librarian flung them into the rising flames. And the flames surged higher. After the Sith Lord had bitten him, Dale Liss had endured a brief but agonizing spasm of physical weakness and distress, 
the pain compounded by the brooding fear that had been growing in his mind throughout the day. This was what he'd felt outside the walls of his sanctuary. The sickness was in here now. It had violated the barriers of safety and security, and it was inside him, running through his roots, spreading through his branches and leaves. And the sickness was laughing. At first, that laughter had sounded so mocking, so bitter and cold, that the netty had only cowered before it. Even the Sith themselves couldn't match the dark malevolence in its voice. Old fool, it had said. Foolish old creature, your life has been wasted here among your books. The netty had tried to respond, to tell it no, that these scrolls and texts were his life. But the sickness hadn't shown the slightest bit of interest in that. It had more to say, and the netty realized that he was a captive audience. It's not too late, the sickness said. I have given you new life and a new purpose, and you will know it if you seek my face. Will you, old tree? Will you seek my face? What is it? the netty asked. What is your face? Mine is the face of blood and fire. And with these words, everything changed. Looking around now at the contents of the library, the countless scrolls and ancient texts, the holdings and stacks that he had spent his lifetime accumulating here, organizing and cataloging for a thousand years or more, he saw them for what they were. Fuel. The flesh is our fuel, the sickness counseled, and its voice was like thunder now. And the books are our fuel, and this planet is our fuel. All things are fuel. They exist only so that they can be consumed by us. Yes, yes, they are meat for the beast. Yes, and the beast is you. Yes! From there, the netty discovered that everything came to him with oily, gratifying ease. Giving himself up utterly to the sickness, he had started the fire without the slightest hesitation. There were years of fuel here, plenty here to burn. Within minutes, the central wing of the library was ablaze, and the seeping, maddened grin of the netty shone with reflected orange firelight. Although there were no mirrors here, no means of seeing his reflection, Daedalus knew that the sickness had changed him. Whole chunks of its once proud bark had begun molting, dropping off in patches, its branches curling and blackening, dripping with thick, foul-smelling drainage that gathered around its roots. But the most profound transformation was happening within him. The sickness had taught him he had sought its face, and now the netty laughed into the fire. Its once kind eyes were twisted now, tightened into knotty slits. Its mouth coiled into a wide, salivating grin as it spoke out in the voice of the orchid. Come, Estizo Trace. Hurry, come to the library. More scrolls, 
More hollow books tumbled into the fire. Sap boiled in the coals. I await your arrival eagerly. I wish to see you here. I have urgent need of you. He stopped and turned, branches whispering. She was already on her way. Wow, now that was an exhilarating update from the frontier of fiction. We just concluded the mind-boggling ninth installment of Red Harvest. And let me tell you, this tale has so much more than the description that's on the back of the book. From start to finish, I was completely immersed in the gripping part that just unfolded. The Star Wars universe is a majestic tapestry, and I can't even fathom what incredible adventure awaits us next. Rest assured, I am securely fastened in my seat, eagerly anticipating the cosmic wonder that lies ahead. But hold on tight, my fellow travelers. We still have the extraordinary privilege of unveiling the quote of this episode. And it comes to us from the wise Walt Whitman. He once stated, Believe in the whispers of your heart, for they hold the secrets of your true destiny. So what does that mean? In our daily life, we are bombarded with external options, social expectations, and the noise of the world around us. This quote reminds us to pause, reflect, and tune into our inner voice. It speaks to the importance of reflection and self-awareness and the significance of honoring our own desires and aspirations. When we believe in the whispers of our heart, we tap into a wellspring of authenticity and personal truth. These whispers offer a compass that can guide us towards a more fulfilling life. By embracing this quote, we acknowledge the significance of our own inner wisdom. It encourages us to trust ourselves and our inner instincts, even when the path ahead seems uncertain or challenging. The whispers of our heart are unique to each of us, and they serve as a roadmap towards living an authentic and meaningful life that will lead us to the success of our dreams. And I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I hope you will join me next time for more excitement and adventures in the Star Wars universe. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. 